studying the book of Acts together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you wave and get their attention. They'll put a Bible in your hand, and it'll be marked to the place where we'll be studying this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. We'll look at a single verse this morning from Acts chapter 4. We looked at the, an overview of the chapter last week and, and looking at a particular subject, and now the next two or three weeks we'll be picking at some specifics within that. And uh, we'll be looking specifically at verse 10, but we'll want to pick things up in verse 9. Peter is speaking before a religious group uh, that has had him arrested, and he said, if we this day, verse 9, are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he's been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for what Peter said here and what it meant to him and to the early church. And thank you for what it, it speaks to us as Christians in 2015 and what it speaks to our individual relationship with you and our service to you and our desire to make a difference in this world for you, Lord, in the age in which you have called us to do so. We pray you freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit now and that you would give us a supernatural ability to hear your voice and to receive from you through your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We aren't studying the book of Acts on Sunday morning, you know, solely or supremely as a historical book. Um, it's a very personal angle with which we are in reason for studying the book. In the book of Acts, the body of Christ, this group of people known as Christians, were a very, very small and persecuted minority in the world in which they lived in the Roman Empire, a small religious minority persecuted by both secular and by a religious establishment, and yet by the confession of their enemies later in the book of Acts, it will be declared that they have turned the entire world upside down through their God, through the gospel, through the effectiveness of their lives. There is a considerable possibility. We pray for revival, and we pray that it won't necessarily be so, but we know a little bit about the Scriptures. But there is the potential that we might become a small, persecuted religious minority uh, in the United States, as Christians are in much of the world today, as they're gathering together to worship the Lord in their place. And so there's much that we have to learn about a Christianity that can hold up and do more than hold up, can be victorious and influential even in the hardest of times. And so these are the things that we want to learn. We want to examine what did they know about God? What did they experience with God? What did God honor in their lives? What was it about the specifics of their Christianity that made them so dynamic and fruitful? 
and then to learn from them. We want a Christianity that comes from the Bible because that's the Christianity that's able to stand and be fruitful in any environment that it finds itself in in the world. It is very, very clear to me in these early chapters of the book of Acts, and not only in these early chapters of the book of Acts, but elsewhere in the New Testament, that this phrase, in the name of Jesus, meant something to these early disciples. And it meant something to them that was very, very significant. And we notice in these chapters, even as we've been reading them in recent weeks, how often in Jesus' name or in the name of Jesus, those phrases are repeated over and over again. If you turn back a page in your Bible to Acts chapter 3, verse 6, we read where Peter then said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Then in verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, Peter said, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, faith that comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. In chapter 4, verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. And then in verse 17, but so that it spreads no further among the people, the religious leaders conferred, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. And then in verse 18, and so they called them, Peter and John, and commanded them not to speak at all nor to teach in the name of Jesus. And then in verses 29 and 30, the disciples cried out to the Lord, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They just about couldn't wait to say uh, something or to do something in the name of Jesus in that early church. I think that today we tend to associate the phrases in the name of Jesus or in Jesus' name as kind of the proper way to end a Christian prayer or that we view that these are kind of the sayings that people use that find themselves in some kind of an extraordinary circumstance in life. It's the kind of uh, phrase that only a, uh, a, a faith healer might use when they're crying out for God to heal people or that it's the kind of phrases that missionaries must resort to in order to cast a demon out of someone who is demon-possessed on the mission field. But maybe there's more to these phrases than just that. What did doing something in the name of Jesus mean to the early church? What did speaking something in the name of Jesus mean to those early Christians? 
and what should it mean to us? And I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. I think it's important to start with an understanding of what a name represented in that ancient Jewish culture in which all of this is occurring there in the early church in Jerusalem. First of all, to the Jew, a name and, and the name of Jesus represented Jesus himself. In verse 10, Peter was saying that Jesus himself was personally responsible for the healing of the lame man. But additionally, in those days, again in that ancient Jewish culture, a person's name represented more than just this collection of letters that were formed from the alphabet that people then would respond to for, for the rest of their life when they heard it spoken, whether in their first roll call in kindergarten or when they were being called to dinner later on in life. Then a person's name in that culture represented who and what they were as a person. It always represented their nature, their character. In our culture, so often, we choose the names for our children based upon whether this, that's a name that we like or this is, we want to name our child after a relative that means uh, something, something to us or a friend who means something to us. But for the most part in our culture, it's just a name. It's just a name that we like that somehow differentiates our child from the other seven billion people that live on the earth. But in ancient Jewish culture, a name represented a person's nature, who and what that person was. When you used that name, you didn't just think of that person. You thought of their character. You thought of the kind of person that they were. When God renamed Abraham and changed his name from Abram to Abraham, the father of many nations is what his name meant. His name now represented not only this person that could be standing anonymously on a dusty road in the ancient world, but it represented who this person was and what his character was. Jacob, when he was born, was named Heel Catcher. That was the name that his parents gave to him. But ultimately, God changed his name to Israel, governed by God. Jesus was deliberately named. Joseph and Mary did not name Joseph when he was born. That name was given to them from heaven, and he was deliberately named after his mission because Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. And Jesus was born into the world in order to provide salvation and the forgiveness of sins to mankind. Names held a significance for them that they generally don't for us. And so when Jesus taught the disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he said, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And Jesus is calling upon us to praise God the Father for his nature. In beginning that prayer, we, do, we are not praising him for what he gives us. We don't praise him for what he does for us supremely, as wonderful as those things are. Jesus is calling us to remember the Father and to praise him for who and what he is, his character, we are praising him for his love. 
We are praising him for his faithfulness, his graciousness, his patience with us, his truthfulness, his forgiveness, his holiness. Jesus taught us as Christians concerning prayer. In John chapter 14, he said, And whatever you ask in my name that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Those are some amazing words. Whatever, anything in his name. Well, if all of that's true, then why are any of us driving cars that are older than one year old? Uh, why aren't we, each of us, living in homes that are twice the square footage of the one that we own? Why isn't each of us as Christians then making twice the annual income that we're currently making? Why aren't each of, all of us enjoying absolutely perfect health? But to pray in Jesus' name is not a magic formula. It isn't like uh, spreading some fairy dust that gets added to the end of a prayer that assures all of our dreams are going to come true. It is to declare that I believe everything that I have prayed and asked for is consistent with Jesus' nature, with his character, with his life, with his teaching, and with his will for my life. And if anything I have prayed is not consistent with his nature, then, Lord, feel free to disregard it. In other words, you cannot ask in Jesus' name that God would bless you in committing a bank robbery. Lord, please bless me. This bank robbery, I'll only do it once, especially if you bless me. And, uh, and the reason we can't ask with any kind of seriousness that in Jesus' name is because we would be asking him to bless something that's inconsistent with Jesus' nature. We can't ask God to bless our teaching of the Bible if we're teaching error or we're compromising what the Word of God says. If we request something that's inconsistent with Jesus' nature, his life, or his teaching, then God is not bound by this promise. But speaking in the name of Jesus also reminded, and this is significant, every time the early church did something or said something in Jesus' name or in the name of Jesus, it reminded them of something. And it reminded them of things that were very, very important. Speaking in the name of Jesus reminded the early disciples of two great facts concerning him, facts that greatly affected their boldness and their confidence for good. First, it continually reminded them that Jesus was not dead, but that he was risen from the dead and very alive. And it provoked them to live a life then that was consistent with that great truth. My God is alive. My God is risen from the dead. And just to say it, just to hear it, stirs something within our spirit. And by the Holy Spirit, it gives us a provocation to say, now, in this situation, I want to live my life in a way that's consistent with that great historical fact. And that 
declaring of things and praying in Jesus' name and speaking in Jesus' name and doing in Jesus' name was something that continually affected them because it reminded them of Jesus' resurrection. This is one of the reasons that the worship experience in the average church becomes extraordinary. I don't care what church it is, on Easter morning or on Resurrection Sunday morning. Collectively here, the Christians have assembled together, and we assemble together on that great morning, and we are all of us thinking of one single great fact supremely, and that is that Jesus is not dead, but he is very much alive, and he is alive in us, and it affects us. I would venture to guess those of you who are familiar with churches, you would look back upon your church experience and say, it is the truth. The worship experiences that occur on Resurrection Sunday morning is is the strongest worship experience of the entire year because collectively we are focused upon the resurrection of Jesus and the truth of that resurrection, and the truth of that resurrection impacts the child of God. I remember being in a church in Romania years ago with Gail Irwin on the first Easter Sunday after the uh, fall and the death of their terrible, terrible communist dictator Ceausescu. And as we were driving in this car on the way to the church that Gail was going to be sharing in, as we passed all of the churches in town, the capital city of Romania, all of them were filled. The crowds were out the door. They were down the street. And the street church that we went to, we pulled up to, and they literally had to shoehorn us into the building. Again, the crowd down the steps, out the front door, all across the front sidewalk and down the street. And it was a fabulous. And then when within that church, they headed into the old hymn and began to sing, Christ the Lord is risen today. I thought the roof was going to come off of the building. I'd never experienced anything like that yet in my Christian life. A continual consciousness of Jesus' resurrection always affects us for good. But the experience of Easter morning The disciples in the ancient church, they knew it. We know it too, but it's good to be reminded of it. The experience of Easter morning is available to every Christian all day, every day, throughout the rest of the 364 days of the year. That boldness, that joy, that faith that comes with realizing he is risen from the dead. And the early church walked strong in that confidence, strong in that consciousness, and again, that continual consciousness of Jesus' resurrection affects us always for good. Peter's answer to the question of the Jewish religious leaders in verse 7, by what power or by what name have you done this? That the man, Peter responded, that the man stood whole before them by the name of Jesus. We didn't do it. We didn't heal him. We didn't raise him from that condition. Jesus did it. And since Jesus did it, that means that he is not dead, but that he is alive and he is risen from the dead. That consciousness, that realization, 
that speaking in Jesus' name, doing in Jesus' name, reminded them significantly of the fact that Jesus was and is risen from the dead. But the second thing it reminded them of is that it further communicated their confidence in the fact that Jesus was also actively present with them by the Holy Spirit. That not only is Jesus alive, but he is presently, actively present to help me. Little old me in every situation and circumstance that I find myself in as a Christian. And it's wonderful to realize that. And in the name of Jesus communicates it. Not only is he risen from the dead, he could be risen from the dead and far from me but he is risen from the dead, and he is present with us. He is actively present with us, and that realization has a tremendous effect upon us as God's people. Whether I'm getting dressed down by the boss at work or I'm trying to figure out which brand of lima beans I'm supposed to pick up out of the 40 brands that stand before me, in the aisleway, in the store that I'm in. My wife has sent me to buy these lima beans. I don't even know why lima beans exist. I don't know what you have to do them. Surely a lot of garlic and bacon to get those down. But I've been sent to the store dutifully as a husband, and I go there, and as I stand there, to my chagrin, there's not just two choices related to lima beans. There are dozens of choices related to lima beans. And what is not a trial for other people is a trial for me. And I stand in that aisle confident that Jesus is with me. He is a very, very present help uh, to me at that, uh, that moment and present to help me. He is there, that consciousness of Jesus as being present to help by the Holy Spirit, how we need it as we're getting the children ready for school in the morning or we're sharing the gospel with a neighbor, that consciousness that he is with me and that he is active to help me makes everything in life different. And the truth of Jesus' continual presence with us is wonderful to realize and something that is encouraged throughout the Bible and encouraged by Jesus himself. Again, in John chapter 14, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit, is what he was saying. He is present with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. At the end of when Jesus gave his great commission to the disciples in Matthew chapter 28, he closed it with the phrase, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself, speaking of Jesus, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus, again, at the, uh, at the end of the uh, giving of the Great Commission, uh, declared for where to, or rather uh, go someplace else, Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, Jesus again declaring, for where two or three are gathered in my name, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. 
and the early church approached every situation that they faced in their lives in ministry filled with a conscious knowledge that Jesus is alive, that He was with them, that He was close at hand, and that He was actively present with them. His presence was not a passive presence, but an active presence. And they were confident of the fact that He would be faithful to answer their prayers and their cries for help and for healing and for deliverance or for whatever in a way that would be consistent with His character and His will in the situation. And there is no greater answer to prayer than a prayer that is answered consistent with Jesus' character and with His will for our lives. Now, all of that will translate into a very exciting, very expectant life, the knowledge that my Jesus is risen from the dead. My Jesus is present with me in the situation that I'm in right now, and that my Jesus will answer my prayer in this situation in a way that is a perfect expression of His power and of His wisdom and of His love. Now, it was all of this that got them into trouble with the Jewish sect, known, religious sect, known as the Sadducees. And they were the ones who were responsible for Peter and John's arrest in the area of the temple. They oversaw the administration of the temple in Jesus' time and at the time of the early church. And they were the ones that were responsible for Peter and John's arrest and the trial that they were putting Peter and John under at this moment. And the reason that this got them into trouble with the Sadducees is because theologically, the Sadducees were the religious liberals of their day. They were the modernists of their day. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in the existence of angels or spirits. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. They did not believe in life after death. And they recognized the great threat that the doctrine of the resurrection represented to their religious system. And that's the reason behind what's communicated in chapter 4, verse 2, where it's declared concerning the Sadducees that they were greatly disturbed that Peter and John taught the people and preached in Jesus' name the resurrection from the dead. And they realized immediately that either Sadduceeism or Christianity must prevail. They could not coexist. They could not both be true. And since this risen Jesus was now healing lame people and then saving other people by the thousands on the temple grounds, grounds governed by the Sadducees, it didn't look good for the Sadducees in the battle of their theology against the realities associated with Christ. And so they wanted to squash all of this out before it grew, and they had absolutely no chance in doing so. I'd like to close this morning by considering some specific situations in life that we as Christians are called upon by the Bible and by the Lord to engage in Jesus' name. We're called by God to engage 
in these situations in Jesus' name. That is, with the knowledge that he is alive and that he is risen from the dead, and number two, that he is actively present with us by the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that we are to pray with this knowledge. We are to pray with the knowledge that Jesus is risen from the dead and that he is present with me, actively present, as I pray to the Father whatever needs I'm lifting up. Again, Jesus declared, John 14, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And I'll tell you, praying with the knowledge that he is alive and that he is present with me and that he is eager to answer our prayers out of the richness of his wisdom and his power and his love, that reality then makes every time of prayer, whether it's individual or whether it's corporate, it makes our prayers raw, it makes our prayers real, it makes them like the prayers that we see in the book of Acts and even represented for us in verses uh, 30 and, and uh, 29 through 31 at the in uh, Acts chapter uh, 4 here. It is an altogether different quality of prayer meeting that occurs when everyone is praying like the prayer isn't just bouncing around the room and then going to fall like uh, and collect like a puddle on the floor in about 10 seconds. But when someone knows in that room that Jesus is risen and he is present there to answer that prayer. Now you've got an entirely different dynamic in that prayer meeting. And I've been in both kinds of prayer meetings. And I have been an influence in both directions in those kind of prayer meetings. The consciousness that Jesus is alive and actively present will change individual prayer and it will change corporate prayer. A, a second thing that we're to engage in Jesus' name, we are to pray for signs and wonders and miracles in our lives and in the lives of others in Jesus' name with that knowledge that he is alive and that he is present and able to perform the miracle that we are asking God for. Again, the early church did it right here in chapter 4, verse 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through, your, through the name of your holy servant Jesus. We also need this confidence when we face spiritual warfare in our lives to cry out the name of Jesus when we're in the midst of spiritual warfare to whatever degree we might find ourselves in, but certainly when we're in the middle of tremendous darkness and attack, to cry out Jesus' name confident in him that he is risen and he is present with us at this moment and that greater is he that is in us than he that is in that room or in that car or in the world, the devil himself. And the Bible is full of this kind of thing in order to encourage us that we are never alone at times of spiritual warfare. 
Jesus was not some distant help or some dusty, dry religious figure to the early church. He was alive and present with them, and they acted and they prayed like it was true. I think about Paul when he was ministering in the city of Philippi, and he comes in and he begins to preach. And as he begins to preach the gospel, he gains the attention of a young uh, woman, probably a young girl, who is demon-possessed. And by virtue of her demon possession, she's able to say things, tell things, maybe tell the future or whatever it might be or the past. She's owned. She's not free of her own. She's owned by a man or a group of men who use this demon possession in her life to use her as a fortune teller and then to make money off of her. They have no interest in her being delivered of the demon that fills her. They just know this is a cash cow and this money is coming in. Somehow, as, Peter, as Paul is preaching there in the city of Philippi, she begins now to follow them around. And she begins, as, Peter, as Paul is preaching, she then begins to declare, these are the servants of the Most High God. Listen to what it is that they're saying. Uh, Paul didn't want to have the devil be in charge of the public relations of his meetings there in Philippi, so he turns to the girl and he said to the spirit in her, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her, and he came out that very hour. And I think how wonderful and powerful it is to call out his name at such times when there's such demonic activity going on around our lives, and to not just think it in our hearts or think it in our minds, but to do what Paul did, to do it out loud, in the name of Jesus, I command you in the name of Jesus, he declared, I command you in the name of the risen and actively present Jesus to come out of her. How wonderful it is to declare the name of Jesus at times like that. Additionally, we can face every temptation that we will ever face in life in Jesus' name. We can face that temptation that comes against us, whether it's the strongest temptation that's a part of our life or lesser temptations, but we face it with the consciousness that my Savior, my God, my Jesus, that he is alive, he is risen from the dead, and he is actively present with me by the Holy Spirit. He is not a passive presence, while I am facing this temptation, he is actively present. And to realize that will have a tremendous effect for good on us as a result. Also, it is the awareness that Jesus is alive and actively present in our lives that allows our praise and our worship to, that we offer up to God to be the glorious thing that it is, the deeply personal experience that it is. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, Therefore by him, that is Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. The consciousness that Jesus is alive, he is risen, that he is actively present with me while it is that we are worshiping the Lord produces an entirely different dynamic in a worship service than when songs are being sung by people who are not conscious of those two great 
realities. And then Jesus wants us to know that he is risen and actively present with us every single time we share the gospel with someone. Again, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, as Jesus promised related to the Great Commission. I will share the gospel with another human being in one way if I do not realize and I'm not filled with the consciousness that he is risen and he is actively present with me as opposed to when I am aware of those two great facts. It produces two entirely different witnessing experiences. And the Bible tells us that one day that the name of Jesus, every single person who has ever lived in human history is going to bow their knee before him and that every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2. And therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He wins. Ultimately, he wins. There is power in the name of Jesus. All we have to do to discover that is to simply speak that name out loud, and then we find out that the power that is in his name, it is seismic. It is supernatural. Just go up to a podium to speak for a few minutes in a secular environment to an audience of, say, 300 people and begin your talk with a mention of Jesus and then just notice what happens within the room. There is a discernible and dramatic impact upon that room and every single person in that room is acutely aware of it. It is supernatural, and no one can escape it. It is like a supernatural spiritual bomb has gone off in the spiritual realm with the repercussions going out in all directions. It doesn't happen when you mention Andy or Barney or Goober or Aunt B or George Clooney, or Tom Cruise, or President Obama, or Muhammad, or Krishna. It happens the way that it does when Jesus' name is spoken. There is power in that name, and everyone knows it. And some love the power of his name, and the mere mention of his name causes their hearts to soar. And others are threatened by the name, convicted by the name. They're uncomfortable with the name. 
but they never stop in the course of their lifetime to ask themselves why. Why, why, why? What is it about that name? Why is it that there is that repercussion, that dynamic of that name all around me? The same thing that can happen before an audience of 300 in speaking in a public setting, that very same thing can happen when in a group of three or four when someone speaks the name of Jesus at school or at work or in a neighborhood discussion that's going on or in a public setting, say a city council meeting is opened with a word of prayer by a member of the Christian clergy, and when the prayer is ended with no mention of Jesus' name, it's closed with in your name or nothing or simply amen. And listen, I'm not trying to pick a fight with Christian clergy who close their prayers that way. I understand when, if they're prohibited from doing that where they say, well, listen, I'll go in and pray anyway. I'll take what I can get and trust the Holy Spirit for that. I don't mention it to create a fight. But when a prayer is prayed, even by a Christian who knows and loves the Lord, and it is not prayed in Jesus' name, then the prayer immediately loses its power. It seems as if the words just fall under their own weight to the floor. But when a prayer is closed with the mention of Jesus, it is like, wow, that prayer has heaven's stamp of approval on it, and that prayer has a lingering power in the room and in the meeting. And the reason that it does is that the Holy Spirit has come to bear witness and to testify to Jesus, and he does every opportunity that he can. You've been in those places. You've been around the table. You're going to say grace, and nobody wants to offend somebody that it's a table. Again, I'm not trying to pick a fight. I'm just our observations in life. So they're not going to mention the name of Jesus, and someone prays, and they pray it in your name, or they just close it with amen. And it was like, okay, great. Some words got said. Now let's eat. It's altogether different than when something is declared and something is prayed in Jesus' name. Mention that name, and something is always going to happen, always. And the child of God, for the child of God, that something happening is always going to be good. And it, it has power because it is his name. Jesus is the name of our Savior and our friend. And it is precious to us because it is his name. We love the name of Jesus because it's his name. But it also reminds us of the perfection of his character. It reminds us of who he is and what he's like and the life that he lived and the character that he has, nothing about which we would ever change. It reminds us that he's risen from the dead and that he has provided us with the same victory. It reminds us that he is always present with us. And this is the confidence concerning Jesus that God wants each of his children to have in every age. During the days of the early church, Jesus' name was an offense to the elders and the rulers in Jerusalem. And the name of Jesus is an offense to many today. 
But to us as Christians, it's the greatest name in human history, and it is our distinct honor and privilege to even be able to speak his name, to be able to use this God-given capacity of speech to then allow his name to fall off of my lips and out of my mouth and into a hearing ear and into the gigantic dimensions of the spiritual realm. Our speech is never so sanctified, never so elevated as when we do. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. I'd like the worship team to come forward and come out and allow them to put the finishing touches upon the sermon here this morning. And after they're completed, I will dismiss you.